Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. My first guest was already struggling with anxiety and chronic fatigue in November of 2018, when Candy Maxwell and her family faced unthinkable losses after the Paradise Campfire. As the months went by, this retired English teacher endured the COVID pandemic, the loss of her parents, and housing problems. She now has written a memoir of the Paradise Campfire and its aftermath. The title is Snow After Fire. Candy Maxwell, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Good to be here. Well, I would like to start with that morning because all of us here in the North State, mm-hmm. I remember exactly where I was when I found out about this fire. So would you read from your book uh, your experience that morning? Okay. November 8th, 2018. I was awakened by ringing. I stumbled to the living room, picked up the phone. I just want you to know we're okay. We're on our way to Chico. Jess was on the line, and we most likely included Jake. What do you mean? I said, blurry-brained and confused. Jess told me there was a fire in paradise. They were told to evacuate. I'll call you when we get to Chico, he said. Jess hung up, and I sat down the phone dazed. I fumbled around the room, searched for my iPad, found it, and then checked the local news. At first, it seemed routine. 8.04 a.m., evacuation order. Due to a fire in the area, an evacuation order has been issued for all of Pence Road in Paradise, east to Highway 70. My sons lived on a small dead-end road off Pence. I read how the 1,000-acre fire had exploded to 5,000 acres. An hour had passed. Chico was a quick 20-minute drive from Paradise, I sat on the couch in my tattered flannels, stunned and shaken. My ponytail was a mess of tangle. I was fidgety, fidged, clinching basket case. I jumped when Jake called from Barnes & Noble. We made it to Chico, he said. Jake told me his ex, Heidi, and my granddaughters, who also lived in Paradise, were on their way to Chico, too. The fire is moving fast, I said. You'd better get a motel room as soon as possible. Now I was frantic. My hands gripped the iPad as I read with horror the news of the growing mass of flames. By 10 a.m., travel out of paradise had become dangerous. Heavy smoke and fire chased vehicles as the entire community fled. The news became more heart-wrenching by the hour. People were trapped in vehicles. Others ran on foot, clutching animals and babies. My granddaughters, ages 5 and 8, were on that road. Later, Heidi told me, Heat melted the plastic parts on my car. The fire engulfed both sides of the road, and the air inside the car was suffocating. They made it out, but fears traveled like smoke. So, uh, Candy, you're reading us this, uh, what happened that morning, and we're introduced to several characters, family members of yours. So you mentioned uh, that the phone call was from somebody named Jake, and that, excuse me, Jesse was, Jess was the one who made the call, Jake, and they are your two sons. Correct. Mm-hmm. And so you're a mother of two sons and a daughter. Right. And what's your daughter's name? My, my daughter in the book is named Karen. <laughs> oh, in the book? Yes. She I said, Mom, don't use my name? Well, just for the protection of privacy, I changed my children's names, uh-huh. yes, and that's pretty common in memoir. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. because it was a locally, you know, book, and I just didn't feel c- comfortable putting them out there. Yeah. I'm very comfortable putting myself out there, mm-hmm. um, but I'm protective of my family. Okay, so your two sons, um, one son has an ex-wife. Correct. Heidi, you call her in the mm-hmm. book. And then you have two granddaughters. And the two granddaughters, did you use their real names? No. <laughs> because there's there's sensitive things you have to say yes, about very these sensitive. members of your family. Mm-hmm. And then your husband, Lloyd, did you change his name That's also? his name. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just for the record. Okay. So um, this fire... Um, you you get the word of this fire, and they are telling you how bad it was just getting to Chico. 
So let's now go a few months into the future. And what happened on March 2019? Okay, so during that time, directly the day after the fire, my sons were only able to stay in a hotel one night. Everything was booked up. They had nowhere to go. Um, My granddaughters were... They moved five times. They were in five different hotels. Uh, And they're just young children. Young children. It was terrible. But because my son, Jake, had the children um, on the weekends, um, we spent at least three days a week with them. My husband and I were living in Brownsville in a tiny cabin up in the mountains. And when I say tiny, I mean very tiny. But it had a little attic room. And so every weekend... um, would Annie and Marie uh, would come and stay with us. And because gave, they had, their mother and father did not live together, so they split their time between mom and dad. That's right. The mm-hmm. two granddaughters. Right. Too. Uh-huh. And so they split their time, and so they were with us every week, uh, which made it very crowded, but um, also it gave them at least some sense of stability. Okay, so give us the scene then. I'm going to ask you to read a section of your book. You start Chapter 3 with a section called Embers. And uh, uh, where are you? Where is this taking place? Okay, this is in our little green cabin in um, Brownsville, like I said. And we are getting ready to go to the community park. And I don't know if you know Brownsville, but it's just a very small community up in the Sierra Foothills, and so we were going to take the girls to the park to get them out to run around because they're living in such cramped quarters. So we're just getting ready to get into the car when I start reading. So Marie is the first one you talk about. Correct. Marie is autistic and speaks in short phrases. Pony gone, she said. Yes, pony is gone. She looked at me for reassurance. Fire gone, she asked. Yes, fire is gone. When the campfire forced Jake and his entire family, including my sweet Marie, to evacuate, there wasn't time to think about what to take or what to leave behind. Marie and Annie grabbed a few toys and were quickly loaded into the family car. Strong winds made the fire erratic, and a few neighboring homes were already engulfed in flames. Her family got stuck in the gridlock as the entire town tried to flee the inferno. Marie and Annie, draped in sopping wet blankets to block the heat, were steamed by the suffocating swelter. Smoke and sparks whirled around them as their car crawled through the conflagration. They zigzagged around burnt-out cars blocking the road. Those who had banded their vehicles ran on foot, some with babies in their arms. The typical 30-minute drive to Chico, where they headed, took over three hours. When I imagined my family in the scene, my heart was pierced with pain. Marie had lost her belongings, her home, the park we played in, the school she attended. But Marie's memories were in the moment. Fire gone, she repeated. I closed my eyes, pressed my fingers into the ache under my ribs. We'd had this conversation before, and the bite sting each time. I hugged Marie gently. When I spoke, my words were worn and weak. Yes, the fire is gone. In paradise, Marie had attended a school for autistic children where she thrived. Now, without a home or her school routine, she was regressing. She was wearing diapers again. She wanted her bottle, and she rarely slept. A sudden sadness overwhelmed me. I was exhausted by so much gone. And this is Candy Maxwell reading from her book, Snow After Fire. And you say you were exhausted by so much gone, and you were going through periods of exhaustion before all this started taking place. Right. So you had this stress of trying to deal with your own uh, lack of energy, and here comes this huge stressor for everybody you knew in that area and your two granddaughters. So this is such a stressful time that you could call this PTSD. Oh, yes. (laughs) Very much so. Yes. Yes. Um, 
like um, it wasn't too many years prior to that that I was uh, diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, and I was an English teacher, which takes a ninth grade, <laughs> tenth grade, which takes a tremendous amount of energy. Oh yeah. And I had to retire. We were living in Modoc County, and so we moved um, closer to family, and we still wanted to be in the mountains, so we chose Brownsville, and. Um, not only that, I had a adrenal tumor that was uh, suspected of cancer at the time. So I was going through emotional stress just in those moments, and um, right in the middle of that was the fire. And so your children, your two sons, lost their home. Mm-hmm. And what are they going to do? Where are they going to go? You said they could only stay one night in the hotel. And you're living in a very small space. Very tiny <laughs> So your children now are not the children of the man you were married to at this time. No. So that caused a problem. Yes, it did. What was the problem, Candy? Well, um, I think, you know, when you have children that are grown, and I wasn't married with my new husband, my husband who I've been married to for over 20 years now, but we weren't married at all with, with the children around. My kids had already grown. And so um, he didn't really know them that well. And then he is also a very, um, a person who needs a lot of personal space, as am I. You know, we both need a lot of personal space. You describe space. yourself as an introvert. I'm a very much an introvert. You know, I read, I, you know, I don't like to get out unless, you know, pushed. And uh, so... All of a sudden, to have his loss of that personal space was pretty horrifying. And he has a different dynamic view of raising family as I did. Um, When I was growing up, family came first. You took care of them. They came in. It didn't matter what. Our family, my family was always filled with people in the home who, like I had an aunt that died at 28. All three kids, her husband came to live with us. My cousins lived with us. It was a normal occurrence. It wasn't with my husband. So so if you fine. have two of your children, even though they're adults, mm-hmm. they're grown, uh, and they don't have a place to live, you're their mom. You say, well, come stay with us. But what did you not think to do? I did not think to ask my husband about any of it. And he didn't take that very well. No. What did he do? Well, initially, he did the best he could because, you know, as we're all in the dark, you know, it's the fire and then, okay, we're going to have FEMA. So this, how long is this going to take? Oh, you know, nobody's thinking this is going to take at least... FEMA will take care of your housing. Yes. Uh. uh, And, you know, in the long run, the first... The FEMA for them came at 10 months later, almost a full year, almost a full year. So they were out of luck, so to speak. And we were not prepared to have that big of a household and that small of a house. And uh, my husband ends up, uh, if you read the story, he ends up getting a great big old (laughs) fifth wheel and pulls it in the driveway. And he kind of makes that his home for a while. And then you have a discussion sometime later about the decision-making. said, please, mm-hmm. <laughs> let me know. Don't just make decisions without right. my input. Correct. Yeah. Well, um, you, you have so much going on in your life that it's understandable that you would have fears that you had to cope with. So there's a section of your book where you, you talk about what ifs. Mm-hmm. It's on page 44. Okay candy and you have all these what ifs you say um i realized i was overwhelmed by a fragile future and so many of us these past few years with covid and so much i think we all feel that way so i I noticed that label fragile future i mean i i know for myself i have to deal with a fragile future so um, what were these what-ifs? You say, my brain was brimming with what-ifs. Why don't you read that? What if it takes months to move out of the trailer with Lloyd? At this point, I was living off-grid in a trailer. This we had moved from the home. Um, what if our marriage deteriorates? What if my sons lose their home? 
What if I can't sort and stack the mess? What if I lose control? And you just say, what if I lose control? And then uh, a few sentences later, you say my control habit was steeped in fear. Correct. (laughs) Why don't you read that paragraph? My control habit was steeped in fear. I was afraid Lloyd would abandon our marriage. Before that, I feared my sons and granddaughters would be homeless after the campfire. Before that, I was afraid of my declining physical health and emotional stability. Before that, it was Jake's addition. He could overdose. Before that, Jess had a liver transplant at age 13. He was so just a second. Excuse me for interrupting, <laughs> but you just mentioned kind of in passing uh, you were afraid for your son's addiction. You were afraid one of your sons could overdose. Correct. So another stressor. Yes. Okay. And, and then, of course, this was earlier, but... Um, My son, Jess, had a liver transplant at age 13. He was diagnosed with idiopathic cirrhosis of the liver at age 8. This was before liver transplants were common. He could have died. This is Candy Maxwell reading from her memoir, Snow After the Fire. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Candy Maxwell, whose book describes what life was like after the Paradise Campfire. The title of the book is Snow After Fire. You describe the fact that you were living off the grid. Mm -hmm. So you're describing your fears, but things that you did not fear, other people might. (laughs) You say, I did not fear darkness, cold, isolation, or rationing food, maybe I could fill my mind with good experiences instead of fearful ones from other areas in my life. I think that's good advice, Candy, that you say, instead of worrying about these things, I can't control these fears that I have, I can kind of give myself credit for not fearing darkness, cold, isolation, or rationing food. And then you finish that section by saying, I was not fearless, but I gave myself permission to let life unfurl through the uncertainty. I think all of us are facing that now. Uh, Our lives are so much different than they were uh, 10 years ago. So I think that's good advice, too. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, you mentioned we've talked about your family, your being the mother and grandmother and mother, but you also have your parents to consider because they're, they're quite elderly. And there's a sentence that is just so touching, Candy. You say um, that your dad began to have um, experienced pain. And you said, as we finished our visit, my dad said, you three girls were the best thing that ever happened to me. Oh, my gosh. I have so many friends who their dads would never say anything like that. And so I just wondered if you realized how how touching that is for those of us reading your book, for your dad to say, you three girls were the best thing that ever happened to me. I got chills when you said that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's, it's um, well, I tell you what, why don't you read a section before we both start crying? Okay. <laughs> and this is uh, a section in your book you call The Undulating Hills, and this is on page 70 in your book. Oh, page 60? 
Yes, 60. Okay. okay, the undulating hills. The days were wavy. The slopes and ups and downs weren't as sharp or abrupt as the loss and destruction brought upon my family during the Paradise Campfire. But still, it was hard to catch a foothold. Heat melted my brain. My elderly parents were dying. My children and granddaughters were still in temporary FEMA homes, and we were five months into the COVID-19 pandemic. July, a heat wave. Without air conditioning, I simply deflated. When the temperature reached 98 degrees, my brain was unworkable. I couldn't think, couldn't read, couldn't write. My entire existence was focused on cool-down action, drink water with ice, miss my body with a spray bottle, cool my neck and face with wet rags, dip my feet in a tub of cold water, hose down clothing until soaking wet, jump in the outdoor shower every hour, repeat. In the evening, in the forest, shadows returned, I would make a light dinner, wash dishes. An entire day would go by without any other accomplishments. Fortunately, the heat waves weren't a constant. Some days the temperatures were in the low 80s with breezes. On those days I was a force. I washed and lined dried laundry, swept and mopped floors, dusted the trailer and wiped it clean. In the evening I wrote and read. It felt good to have an active mind, a moving body. During this time down in Southern California, my sisters had their hands full caring for my parents. Even though my mother now had a full-time live-in caregiver, it took an all-hands-on-deck approach to keep my parents comfortable and living in their own home. Kimmy drove my father to doctor appointments. My sister Sandy's son, John, took my mother to her appointments. My niece, Kimmy's daughter, did the grocery shopping. In addition, there were numerous trips to the emergency room. After one trip to the ER, my mother was admitted to the hospital due to severe edema. I spoke with Sandy on the phone. Mom's doctor called me this morning. He said that her ultrasound showed Mom has cirrhosis of the liver. I guess you can get it just from being older. It causes all the same signs as cognitive heart failure, so they really don't think she has that now. Her liver is the primary cause of the swelling, confusion, and sleeping. The doctor said that mom's memory is good. She's mentally strong. That's encouraging, I said. Is mom home yet? Kimmy's talking to mom, taking mom home from the hospital this afternoon, as there's not much more they can do. The good news is her swelling is down and her breathing is much better, Sandy said. How's dad holding up? Now, this is Candy Maxwell reading about her parents and the difficulties they're going through. And she's wondering, okay, their mom's doing pretty good, mentally strong, and uh, but dad had to go to the emergency room. So your parents are going through this, and they're in their late 80s. Correct. Both of them. So we're not surprised then uh, that you lose your parents, that they do die. And I mentioned you record your dad's last words. And you and I both <laughs> choked up with that. There's one more place in your book where I don't think I actually, I think the tears actually flowed. I don't know if you realized it, but um, I think dog lovers. Oh, yes. <laughs> when your dog gets hit by a car and you lose your dog, uh, so many of us have had to say goodbye to a dog. And then your new dog brought back memories for me because when I lived in Peru, I watched a parade. They had this uh, dark-skinned figure on, um, they were holding, a, holding him up in a parade, and his name was San Martin de Porras. And uh, I thought, oh, Candy got a dog that was named for this Peruvian <laughs> right. dark-skinned uh -huh. saint, San Martin mm -hmm. de Porras. Mm -hmm. And so you uh, thought, we can't call a dog St. Martin. Let's change his name. But you didn't. And why didn't you change his name? Well, my daughter looked it up. <laughs> and when we read that St. Martin was a, um, he was he was actually never a priest because he was mixed race. And so he ended up being like a saint for the mixed race um, and your little doggy has and, a mixed and breed. He's a mess. He's a mutt of <laughs> undistinct <laughs> nature. I mean, you can't, I he just looks like a long, weenie dog with weird spots. And uh, yes, uh, not, 
not recognizable. And then the other thing, he was this saint of um, um, for women, directionist people, people who had needs. He did a lot of work for others, and so I had never read about this saint, but. Uh, well, I'd never heard him until I lived in Peru when yes. there's a parade mm-hmm. for his, in his honor mm-hmm. with a figure of the statue of this saint. Yes. And so I was touched that you have a dog. <laughs> called St. <Saint> Martin. <laughs> yes. Except you don't put the saint in front of it. No, just I just call, call him, him Martin. Martin. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, yeah. And he was such a comfort to you. I think you called one section of your book canine medicine. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think so many people would uh, would say, oh, I understand what she means by that. Yes. <laughs> I have a neighbor who has his dog is his canine medicine. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things in your book that I think people could say, oh, my gosh, I've been through that, like with your parents or your children. Now, a lot of what you, you're a tough person when you can live off the grid. <laughs> so um, your book has so many things that I think people could say, oh, my gosh, I went through that with my parents. And look how she dealt with that. Mm-hmm. And I think they will appreciate your writing this memoir. Thank you. Now, you do conclude your memoir with a paragraph that I think would be nice to, this is actually, you call author's note. Mm -hmm. And the very last paragraph of your author's note says, I didn't intend to to author a story about fire, housing insecurity, or loss of our wildlands. I simply wrote about my life as it unfolded. Writing was my way to find clarity in an often confusing world. It provided structure for my messy emotions. It allowed me time to reflect and to discover something to be thankful for during the chaos. It was and is how I find hope. Thank you, Candy. You're welcome. This was author, memoirist, Candy Maxwell, reading from her book, Snow After Fire, a memoir of the Paradise Campfire and its aftermath. Thank you, Candy. After a break, I'll be talking to local author Wick Humble, who wrote a trilogy called A Place on Mars, and we'll be talking about his second book in that trilogy, The Wildfire. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. Chico author Wick Humble has been a kindergarten teacher, a trucker, bass player, and soldier. He worked his way through college as a wildfire fighter for five seasons. He restores old cars as a hobby and writes fiction and nonfiction. His latest work is a historical novel trilogy called A Place on Mars. Part one, The Flood, has a cover illustration by Wick Humble's granddaughter, Layla Humble. The cover of part three, The Explosion, is illustrated by the author himself. Today I'm going to ask Wick Humble about part two of his trilogy, The Wildfire. Wick Humble, welcome. Hi, thank you. Now, the title of your book, A Place on Mars, and I read that title and think, oh, this is science fiction. Everybody does, and I was warned about that, uh, even some people online. But it's from a – and believe me, I wasn't a rump jumper. I was quite a macho young man. But the girls used to have a jump rope rhyme that went, A place on Mars where the women smoke cigars. And this little town I'm from, 
could be <laughs> based on Mars. Well, but you might mention the town. I'd rather not because oh. <laughs> I just came back from my 60th class reunion and there was some interest in it. But I, as I write in the foreword of, of part one, I'm not in this book and neither are you. Well, that's what people might wonder because um, the characters in your book uh, are taken from your generation. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I was thinking, well, uh, it's, these characters are no doubt based on some people he knew at that time. Yeah, and I've, I've borrowed— And maybe you and, in it? and maybe me. My wife says she sees me in two of them. It wasn't necessarily the ones I thought, <laughs> but she knows me well. But, um, yeah, the names and the characters are vaguely represent people I knew, but the things that happen are much more generalized. Well, what is the setting? Where and when is does this opening? Well, well let's, the very first in the trilogy, then, is when we meet these characters. Right, yeah. And, and so where are and when are they? Well, I, I wanted to make it a generic little rural town in the West, not specifically my little rural town in Modoc County. So they could be – I don't mention any state names or otherwise county names that that would identify it as being the town, although my brother laughs and says if I look at the maps that I drew for the for, – <laughs> well, they suggested – they said it's kind of confusing if you don't have a map in the front. And I said, well, that's easy to do. And I thought, well, why reinvent the wheel? I'll just go with the, the basic layout that I knew from – my youth. And uh, I'd, I want to make sure that, that it's it's amenable to anybody who grew up in a small western town or somebody who wonders what happened in small western towns. I, I didn't write an expose. I was surprised when I got done. It's all very positive about small town life and, and you know, places that, that are associated with that, though there are downsides to it without a doubt. My guest is Wick Humble, and he has written a trilogy the three are t totally, the trilogy is A Place on Mars, and today I'm going to ask him about part two, The Wildfire, and I mentioned who illustrated the cover of part one and part three, and what about the cover on The Wildfire? Well, The Wildfire was done by one of my, uh, my granddaughter's um, um, classmates at Inspire High School named Lily Funkhauser, and uh, we just, we were introduced by the teacher vaguely, briefly, and uh, I gave her a sketch and told her a little a subsection of the novel that describes some of the kids that are in it because it's all about teenagers, basically, and uh, teenagers from a past era, of course. And uh, she did a really nice uh, job with uh, uh, computer graphics, and we refined it a couple of times, and then and she did it. She put her spin on it because I thought, well, I was hoping – initially to maybe have these available for secondary, junior high and secondary teachers who would want to put them on an, a, an optional reading list. But I, the feedback I've been getting is they're mostly what they call historical fiction nostalgia. <laughs> because there's no cell phones, there's no wizards, there's no dark well, what, side. What year your story opens in part one? What well, year is it? You mentioned a trilogy. I've gone crazy now. I like my characters so well. I've written two novelettes that fill in between these stories. It starts in 1959, which would have been a class of 62. And uh, it ends up in 1964, and, and the explosion is based on a, uh, you'll figure this out, an explosion at a Titan One missile base, which, of course, we had occur in Chico. And it's the aftermath of that that they have to deal with in that one. So you have the characters that we are introduced to these characters in part one, which is part one is called The Flood. And we meet these characters, and then how much time passes before the next story, part of the story takes place? Okay, the, the wildfire set in 1962, which was two years before I became a firefighter, and quite a different scene than what you see with firefighters now. So I want to describe that because I'm very familiar with it. Well, now, when you mentioned 1962, I was... My heart was warmed by something that you just mentioned in passing, Wick, and I'll bet you didn't even know what you were saying when you mentioned the Shantae. My wife, my wife says I often don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> you mentioned a popular tune. It wasn't a song. It didn't have words. Pipeline. And I don't know if you knew the the guy that played piano in the Shantae's lived in Chico. I interviewed him right here where you're sitting a few years ago. And I heard it. 
and he is the nicest guy you can imagine. So talented. His name is Rob Marshall. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember that very well. I wish we'd have been interviewed. My, we had a family band, and that's since these kids have a band, a garage band, that's some of the adventures are what's based on trying to scrape up enough money for for uh, instruments that actually play and a PA system that people can actually hear and hoping to book gigs against the old fogies band in town and usually not because when people want to twist, they don't want to get to the bunny hop. <laughs> <laughs> My guest is Wick Humble, and he has written a trilogy, and the trilogy is called A Place on Mars. And I'm going to ask him about part two, The Wildfire. And I was... Uh, as I said, my heart was warmed when you mentioned the Chantays because that I remember Pipeline. And that was kind of a shift in the way the music had been uh, from, uh, I don't know, rock and roll and then the California scene down Southern California. And that came to the foreground. And you were there witnessing all of this. Yeah, I think we pay more attention to music when we're preteens than we do as teenagers or adults because that's the biggest part of our world we're trying to transition into a grown-up world at least an older world a much more mature world and so when I bought most of my my records and my family did I grew up in a big melded family and our record collection was pretty eclectic but we were buying more records then than uh, for instance with a boy when you get your driver's license your budget suddenly changes completely <laughs> you don't have money for records anymore insurance and gasoline and broken parts are your agenda well, uh, I was amused because mentioning Rob Marshall, his um, dad wanted him to invest their income because these, these kids, they were just high school students. They suddenly had all this money. And, of course, the dad wants, well, invest these, my son. And he wanted to buy a boat. He wanted to <laughs> spend it on something that he would, a kid would want. So this, uh, The Wildfire, uh, includes, and your books include slang of the times. And, uh, for example, you use the word beatnik, and I don't know that people even know that term anymore. But uh, There are a lot of things that people should know now. I, I Unfortunately, I do an awful lot of reading of – I won't characterize any particular generation, but they haven't got the history that they should have in their writing, and I'm finding errors and omissions constantly and things that – even if you watch Jimmy Kimmel, he doesn't know what he's talking about sometimes because he only knows the recent history of things. And yeah, when yeah. you delve back into – and most of the history you and I are talking about is probably not on – can't be Googled yeah. because it's it's in memory and it's mm-hmm. in a very fragile mm-hmm. memory which belongs to us. And, and my little brother, he was proofreading. He was my beta reader. And he says, boy, you certainly speak our – you have our idiom down pat. And I said, hey, <laughs> I, studied that, I studied that closely because he yeah. couldn't if he wanted to belong. Yeah. He wanted to be in the in crowd. You had to know how to talk, you know. But yeah. I, I did a little research and found out we used to call the police fuzz. I did some, I do a lot of reading and watch old movies, and I found out that word actually originated 30 years earlier. That gangsters were calling the the policemen fuzz yeah, then. I'm going, oh, yeah. I thought we invented that word, man. Well, as far as the music go, then there was Elvis in the 50s and then this evolution, the beach music. And then after that, you've had uh, folk rock. Mm-hmm. Which basically has dropped completely from sight. Yeah. Even Bob Dylan. Of course, he does Cadillac commercials, so who, I don't know about <laughs> that. But, yeah, I in, in the third story, the group, the Crusaders, they just took their name from their high school team. And they are a bit of Crusaders, not in a bad sense, but in a nice sense because they're nice kids. They are trying to transition and they don't know what to do. because And so they take, a, a, they take a, an attempt at an open mic night in a beatnik coffee house in their college town, and it's a success. Well, you know what I'm imagining? If your books were made into a movie, that would be the music. You could change the music in the background that's playing, and people would be who lived through that era would be just taken right back by the music. Well, people talk about the soundtrack of your life. I know that's yeah. a cliche, but that was huge. And and we grow up, maybe you too, with the big bands on the on the old hi-fi. What even stereo yet? And, and LP 78s, not LPs. And so. There's tons. My parents had that collection. Yeah. And I used to listen to it. They were the mm-hmm. old, old fragile yeah. records that uh, I, as I a kid I broke ours. them without <laughs> thinking about it. And yeah. did sometimes too and got yeah. in trouble. But, you know, dad was a big fan of Harry James and mom liked Bing Crosby. And, Donna and so Shore. when you get into a, an old age earworm, quite often those were what comes up. 
you know. I, I, I avoided country and western, which was not big in our country and western oh, town. Oh, my gosh. I remember traveling. I would yeah, I had a station out. that was playing country and western. I thought, no, please let me find some rock and roll. Yeah. Where are the, be- the, onion- the green onions, for example? Yeah. yeah would- <laughs> well, you mentioned that. That was the theme song to American Graffiti, and that's a good uh, example of a hit movie and a, a very valid hit movie, too, the best of the genre, that was constantly backed up by songs of that era, you know, and it, it songs are like <laughs> like aromas. Suddenly you snap into something, you know, your mind does a, a quick U-turn and says, oh, yeah, I remember how I felt when I heard Green Onions. I remember what I felt when I heard Pipeline or Shantae. Yeah, or, yeah. I remember how I felt when I heard I Want to Hold Your Hand. Oh, yeah. I thought, first time I heard it on the radio, I thought it was the Everly Brothers <laughs> because they, they had an accent. And I'm going, yeah. is that that Kentucky accent? Is that the Everly's <laughs> new song? Well, pretty close in some ways because they certainly appreciated the Everly Brothers. And I was a convert right away. And get this, you and I were in college when the Beatles hit. Oh, yeah. I remember that quite well. Yes. My guest is Wick Humble, and his trilogy is called A Place on Mars. And I'm asking him about The Wildfire, which is part two. Now, another thing that evokes the time, uh, you have a character named Shirley, mm-hmm. and she had a Corvair Monza. In the third issue, she now did. I I remember the Corvair because Ralph Nader uh, came down on that, but I didn't remember Monza, and so I asked a friend who's a car fan like you are, and he says, "Oh yeah, I've heard of Monza." Yeah, they built several models called the Monza, and of course, the people laughed because Chevrolet had never run at the racetrack Monza in Italy, but it was a glamour name, and uh, it was quite a pace-setting car because the car uh, market that the Corvair was in was the cheapest. They were the economy cars. They were Volkswagen fighters, supposedly. None of them ever really did. The Volkswagen prospered in any way. Yeah. It was kind of an American Volkswagen, and the the fan base of those things is huge, like Edsel's, but basically everybody that's got one, has one, got one. So, Well, I remember in college, my boyfriend had a Corvair, and I didn't think anything about it then. We didn't. <laughs> well, and and they were they had their limitations. I have a Pontiac Tempest now that shared that independent rear suspension, very sophisticated, but not quite because they were built to a price. It didn't quite go the route like a, a Datsun Z car or a Porsche or a Corvette. They had it too, but they had an advanced version. Corvair eventually got it, but by then Ralph Nader had savaged the market. And frankly, I. I've driven all the cars of 1960 and 61 when they were new because I used to be a lot bot at the local Pontiac dealership and my, my best friend's dad's dealership. So we often worked down there just for all the things we could swipe off the parts lot. And it didn't handle any worse than any other American compact car. They were all miserable. Well, now, I've mentioned the language that you uh, use, the terminology, the slang mm-hmm. of that a time in your life. But now there's another section, you're, and those were familiar to me. Yeah. But in this book, The Wildfire, use firefighters' language. I tried to explain some of it, too. Yeah, but that was all new to me, not having any experience in that regard. So I was wondering if maybe you might read a little bit from your book, The Wildfire. Okay. Well, the thing is, that the, I'd rather read it towards the climax end of it. Okay. So you're going to have to pretend like you know these characters already, <laughs> but it's basically the three boys on the fire crew, the assistant foreman and uh, Rick, and who's sort of me since I'm Wick. And I was, uh, I Rick was, for I, Wick, yes. I, I've been a mentor to a lot of firefighters back in the day, and they've even come up and said— Well, you five seasons. Five you seasons. You had a lot I of was, experience. Yeah, I was pretty experienced. Five seasons experienced. As a I was a red card-carrying crew boss. And uh-huh. so that's considered to be – I got to fly on planes when we went to fires by the time I finished up. But – and then it's got Ramon, who's our Hispanic character. And my wife tried to vet me on that because she's lived you know, Hispanic all her life. And also David, who's a uh, – uh, nobody knows it. He's the superior court judge's son, but he's Jewish. And nobody knows because there's no congregation in this little town. And I, yeah, that's really yeah. based on truth. Yeah, because it felt like it when I was reading that section yeah, that you just mentioned. Yeah. It felt like it. But Cheryl is is uh, she's short for Shirley. Shirley, and uh, they call her Cheryl. And quite often in front of the grownups, they correct. They say Cheryl E, <laughs> and correct themselves. There's nobody in particular, but she's also lives under the handicap of being the county sheriff's daughter. And Ramon especially is a little afraid of him because Ramon is out drag racing at night and things like that. He's a real motorhead, you know. Dave is not. Dave plays a, a grand piano and is the head of the California Scholarship Federation. I mean, the State Scholarship Federation. I didn't want to identify that. And uh, there's another character who's a cowboy, 
but he's their drummer in their band, and he's not much of a country and western guy, and he's a big red-headed kid that was based on my buddy in the Army from Alturas that died in Vietnam, and so I wanted to write something that was, you know, credible about yeah. him. Yeah. So I'm going to skip something I brought, and they're fleeing from the fire. The fire line is, is they've tr- the, the firefighters have tried three fire lines. It's an arson fire, but this is the first time we've introduced a bad guy, and they're they're running away from the fire uh, across a log bridge and then around this lake to get to a landslide that was what formed them the valley up and formed the lake in the first place. And it's mostly bare rock. It was a you know a landslide in in prehistoric times, and there's a beautiful little lake called Sapphire Lake. And so the boys come and find the her at the at the church camp where she's a counselor that summer. And they don't realize that she's there. She was supposed to be picked up by one of the rangers who unfortunately is, is, had met his demise by now from a, a crash in the fire. And so she doesn't know nobody's coming for him. They're, they're trailing the, the, the fire tankers around the corner by the camp, and suddenly she races out and waves at him. So they're escaping on this old trail to the lockside. After another half mile, the youngsters were clearly showing signs of being played out all resources spent. And the lurid fire was making progress. It was obviously in this sector. It might only be stopped at the water's edge if it were arrested at all. Worse, the wind was starting to bring a veritable snowstorm of gray ash on their side of the lake and not a few of these still glowing with fluorescent orange of burning wood. Luckily, the refugees had finally reached the loop trail end at the edge of the darkly barren landslide. There was a large informational sign here with a rudimentary diagram of how the slide blocked the natural canyon and usual facts and estimated dates. A log bench faced this, and the children all dropped onto it as if by one accord, too tired to consider the historic natural phenomenon of it all. As long as those dark rocks were happy where they were and wouldn't actually slide anymore, they seemed to be thinking. Across the reflective water, ranks of orange flame were awe-inspiringly malevolent as they sought out and devoured the tinder-dry cabins rank by rank. This would have to be the utter climax of the inferno. The fuel it was consuming was the absolute main course today. All realized that the other crews now reinforced with official campgrounds and the ranger's cabin by the entrance gate, but with the eastern flank burned away against a half-mile fireline of water and aided by the outflow of Cedar Creek at the scenic waterfall area, they stood a good chance of bottling it up before it marched onwards over the ridge towards their summer home station at Cinder Springs and onto Timber Peak with its lookout tower. As with any fire, a lot depended on the weather, wind, and even rain so variable and marginally predictable circa 1962. As two more propane fuel tanks joined the sequence of booming explosions, the volume of airborne debris, especially still burning flotsam, intensified. Within minutes, the rain of smoking cinders and glowing ashes turned into a variable deluge of nasty inflammatory material. Would it be advisable to go out at the rocks, guys, said Dave? I mean, though this slide is wetter, there's still enough vegetation over here to get ignited, and we're not quite out of it yet. This is uh, Wick Humble, and he's reading an excerpt from the second in his trilogy. Uh, the trilogy is A Place on Mars, and this is from part two, The Wildfire. So, uh, Wick, the uh, term hook mm-hmm. comes up at the end of your book, and for people who might not know what a hook is, why do you use that word toward at the end of your book, this book? Well, it's um, I collect old teenage adventure books, not just the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, but ones that go clear back to the turn of the last century. And many, many of those publishers, Grosset and Dunlap and a lot of other ones, Whitman and them, would put not only a list of books available at the end, but they would put a chapter or so of uh, a subsequent book in a series if there was one. I noticed that some of the modern publishers are starting to do that again. So I tried to hook, but it's a TV term, really that the radio and TV media use to try to pull you into the next scene so you won't change channels at the the commercial. (laughs) Yeah, they do that. And so uh, you have a hook, which could be a paragraph or a page, from the next story in the series. And so that's what you do at the end of The Wildfire so that people read that. Oh, my goodness, I want to read the next book. Well, we hope so. And I, I didn't tell you yet, but I have two novelettes that I've interspersed between these that are going to be out by Christmas time, I hope. Well, thank you for coming in today, Wick, and sharing the information that you include in your trilogy, A Place on Mars. And there are three parts, and you even did the illustrations in the part three, which is The Explosion. So thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's been an interesting experience, I must say. I would also like to thank my first guest, Candy Maxwell, whose book is Snow After Fire, a memoir of the Paradise Campfire and its aftermath. 
And next we have a segment we call The Writer's Room, and it features writers from around the North State. Formed. I was born into this, the blood and the violence. I was forged like a steel blade in the flames of abuse and silence. Before I was able to formulate identity, I had the bruises take that luxury, that luxury robbed from me. It was this who made me the man that I am. So I guess I wouldn't change it, and I really don't give a damn. The bruises and blood helped formulate this personality and left me with this introspective touch of insanity. It has also left me with a bottomless tank, completely fueled and ready, ready to crank. So think for a second before you disrespect me. I'm far more intense than the stormiest of seas, and I can be just as cold as well. It's a product of my youth and my time spent in hell. Before you start to think I'm just bumbling about, look into these eyes and I will hand you some doubt. I am hard like a stone and I can be cold as a rock, but I'm no longer dim, nor dirty or lost. See, this life has tumbled this stone into a gem, and I will prove that I am just as valuable as them. I guess what I'm saying as I gaze upon the sun Go ahead and doubt me. That should be fun. David Gregory. We are not safe here. In California, wildfires surround us, east and west, north and south. The sun and moon, the skies are blood red, days dark with an eerie glow. I saw a woman running with her horses with flames behind her, through smoke and dust to save them. I saw mountains burning, fighters of the fire, zipping themselves inside protective bags and lying down waiting to be consumed or not. We are not safe here. We cannot walk outside or open windows or breathe clean air here. I know the leader of our country is a madman. We are not safe here. I drove my car in the raining ash while everyone in other cars looked normal. Some wore masks, some smiling, and I asked myself, what am I doing here? The radio announced, welcome to hell, and happily said what song he would play next. I asked aloud, what am I doing here? No one listens, no one believes we are not safe here. Yesterday, the sun shone. A mockingbird serenaded me. The pink flock smiled at me. Now all is covered by gray ash. It looks dead. No, we are not safe here. By Debbie Grelly. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.